All right, let's get into God's Word, and I think it's easy uh, for us to think that God doesn't know, or God doesn't care, or God isn't in control when things go sideways. And we, we often hear this prayer, and maybe you've prayed it yourself, just like, God, where are you? As if God is absent from the situation that we're going through. And when we look uh, more broadly from our personal lives to the corruption that we see, for example, in government or uh, the devastation of war or poverty around the world and how it afflicts so many, or uh, again, bringing it local, the, the desperation of those who are caught in addictions or the moral decline that we see in our society today, we, we think of all of these things and we might have the idea that God has lost his grip on the world. But in fact, everything is happening in your life and in this world according to God's determined will. Now, you may believe that, but you have to understand that that's a bit of a controversial phrase. Let me say it again. Everything is happening in your life and in this world according to God's determined will. In other words, nothing is taking God by surprise. God is never saying, oh, oh, that's how that's playing out. I mean, God is never saying that. He's never, he's never wondering. The purposes of God are not being thwarted in any way, but are being accomplished perfectly according to his appointed time. And as we resume our study in the Gospel of Luke today, and the passage we're going to be looking at in Luke chapter 22 the conspiracy to take Jesus out begins to come together. They mean to destroy him and to end his life and his ministry. And Jesus had made repeated predictions about this very thing, about his suffering and his death leading up to this moment. We're jumping into Luke 22, but we've studied the entire gospel. And we've seen over and over again along the way how uh, Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to have to suffer and die. I'm going to be turned over to the leaders. The disciples, in fact, are about to hear another element of that plan and how it's going to come together and the fact that one of them is going to betray him. You start thinking about betrayal, personal betrayal. And if you've ever been personally betrayed, you know how very painful that is. And in fact, we could hardly imagine anything else in life more painful than a friend, a loved one who betrays. And as awful as that is, it too is part of God's plan to bring about his kingdom to earth. And that kind of makes the point. As awful as betrayal is, it's part of the plan to do something good and awesome and, 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 and glorifying to God and, and beneficial to us. It makes the point that no matter what is happening in the world or whatever is happening to me personally, God cares deeply. God is accomplishing His will. The purposes of God cannot be thwarted in my life. That's the main point of this message. That's the thing I want every person to walk out of this room today absolutely convinced from the scriptures that the purposes of God cannot be thwarted. 
no matter what's going on in my life. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to get into Luke 22. Let's bow our heads. Father, again, uh, coming together, I'm struck by um, your grace, your goodness toward us, and gathering us together in your name and, and giving us your words to speak to us. And, and Father, we're going to wrestle down this idea that, that even the evil things, even the, the hardest things we go through are part of your determined will for us. And I pray today that we could rest in that. And Father, that you would continue that process of transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ as we surrender ourselves to what your word is saying today. So God, this is a work that that no one in this room, no human being could ever accomplish. And so we need your Holy Spirit right now to help us. Help us to grasp your word, to believe it, to conform our will to yours, and then to live this out. So Father, hear our prayer and bless this time, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You agree with that prayer? You with me, time change weekend people? Are you with me? All right, let's go after this. The purposes of God cannot be thwarted in my life, though I may face fierce opposition. That's the first thing we'll lock down here. Though I may face a fierce opposition. Let me read the first six verses. This is Luke 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of of a crowd. Now, um, in these first few verses, the battle lines are being drawn, but there's no surprises here. Again, having worked through the entirety of the gospel, we know that the religious leaders, these uh, scribes, uh, have been opposing Jesus at every turn, and their intent now is uh, to seize him, and the scriptures are clear for us here. Uh, Their intent is to put him to death. They want to put him to death during the Passover uh, when uh, Jerusalem's packed with pilgrims. The idea around the Passover is that people from all over Israel would come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so the city would be teeming with people. And under the the crush of the crowd, the uh, religious leaders felt like uh, this is going to be a really good opportunity during Passover to take care of this business. And maybe people won't notice it's happening. At the same time, they knew that the crowd presented a problem to them because the crowd loved him. The crowd loved him. People from all over uh, Galilee and Judea had heard him speak and had seen him do miracles. And he had brought this message of hope. And he was was, uh, challenging the religious leaders and some of their teaching. and, And he was challenging the status quo in people's lives. And just, they had seen miracles happen. They, maybe some of them had been there when the 5,000 were fed. And they had seen Jesus do things and heard him say things that was just kind of like rocking their world. And they loved it. And so while at the same time the religious leaders are like, let's kill him, let's do it, do it during Passover because there's so many people in town, at the same time they were really afraid of those people. And they knew that when they, when they were going to seize him, that that seizing of him had to happen at a time when the crowd wasn't around. And so um, they have this plan, and uh, these chief priests and s- scribes are going to um, carry it out 
But they weren't the only opposition that Jesus was facing. In fact, the religious leaders we find out in the text here actually had two co-conspirators that helped them pull it off. In verses 3 through 6, we find out that Satan reappears on the scene after a noticeable absence in the gospel. And that Judas, one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, are also involved with the religious leaders or become involved. Now as for Judas, let's talk about him first. We, we can't be sure of his motive, but we know that money was exchanged. So at, at least at some level, he's motivated by receiving some money for this. And the only thing that Judas needed to do in order to betray Jesus was simply tell them, show them where Jesus was going to be away from the crowd. So Judas is not being asked to give testimony at the trial or to betray Jesus in any public way. It's just that, hey, Judas, you're going to know where he is because you're part of the 12. Would you just tell us where he's going to be? And Judas fulfills that. Now, what's curious about Satan showing up at this point, again, is that he's remained somewhat quiet during the gospel, at least since chapter 4. You'd have to go back to Luke chapter 4 to see that Jesus went off into the wilderness after he'd been baptized, and Satan showed up there, and Jesus fasted, and Satan brought these, uh, these three temptations against Jesus, trying to get him to sin, try to get him off the mission, try to win a big victory over God. And Jesus refused all of those, resisted all of those temptations. And in chapter 4, verse 13, it says this, When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Let's call that Luke 22. Okay, the opportune time is now, because now Satan's watching. And I just have a picture of Satan's been lurking around the whole time. He's had some, some demons involved in some encounters with Jesus. But Satan's been biding his time. He's been watching. And now he sees it. It's the Passover. The crowds are in Jerusalem. The religious le- re- leaders are intent on killing him. And we have a betrayer in the midst of the twelve. So Satan enters in where this, this opening is, is in Judas's life. And he enters in. Judas was a willing host. The chief priest had a devious plan. And a pact was signed between the three. A triumvirate of evil was created. Now, I want to ask you a question at this point. Do you think that these religious leaders, or do you think that Judas or Satan, in any way thwarted the plan of God? Of course not. Even this, this, this group of evildoers with malicious intent toward the Son of God, they couldn't thwart the plans of God. In fact, God, far from even being thwarted by them, God integrates them into the plan. They become part of the determined will of God. They're pawns. As Jesus moves, as God moves towards checkmate, they're pawns in his game. As I think about that, I, I wonder about the setbacks and the trials in our own lives. I, I wonder about the people who have e- evil intent toward us. I wonder even about those who have had uh, encounters with, with Satan and his demons and, and very overt encounters with darkness. Sometimes we think that we're being defeated. Sometimes we think those trials are crushing us. 
Sometimes we think that the evil one is winning and that God is absent. When in fact, what's really happening, as was happening in Luke 22, is God's actually using all of that to bring you to a better place. That this is all part of God's determined will for our lives. Because the setbacks and the trials and the evil intent of people and even the overt work of Satan are not a match at all for Jesus Christ. The all-knowing, all-powerful God will accomplish His glorious purpose in and through you by any and all means. Which includes evil things that can happen around us. But listen, now, there's a caveat to this. It will happen... As I seek to faithfully walk with God. See that next? It will happen as I seek to faithfully walk with God. Now it, speaking of the determined will of God, it will happen no matter what. For example, the determined will of God happened to Judas as well, but I think you want your story to play out differently than Judas's. Would that be fair? Everybody wants their story to work out differently than Judas's. The determined will of God applied to Judas, but we want the determined will of God to include awesome things for us, the blessings of God, the goodness of God. We want to be on the right side of this story, in other words. And the way to get that happen, happening in our lives is, is to seek to faithfully walk with our God. Now pick it up. We read to verse 6. Let's pick it up at verse 7 now. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Let's pause there for a second. We'll come back and read the other verses. But I just want to pause here for a second because there are people who interpret this and they just said, well, you know, Jesus planned this whole thing out ahead of time. Somehow he slipped away from the disciples and he went into town and he planned the whole thing for the upper room and all of that. And he came back and all he's doing is he's just telling the disciples to go and kind of latch onto the plans that he made. But when you read this and you see that this is so random about some guy who's carrying a water jug through the city at the precise moment that they enter the gates, that you understand that this isn't about Jesus setting this up ahead of time. This is about the Lord has set this up miraculously and the disciples are going to discover it in this moment. And all of this is still part of God's determined plan. Okay, none of that was in the notes. That was just a freebie as, as, as we kind of go through here. He said to them, behold, when you, this is verse 10, you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and they found it just as he had told them and they prepared uh, the Passover. Now, you could just write in the margin here that what's going on here is just, it's party planning. Okay, this is just, this is just re responsible party planning is going on right now. But there's something way more happening here. That Jesus is actually modeling something for us in the midst of all this evil that's, that's conspiring to take place. Against the backdrop of Jesus knows what's coming next, that it's going to get even worse, and he's going to give his life um, in, a, in a few hours' time. And what Jesus is doing is he's modeling faithfulness and devotion to God in the midst of that. 
In other words, the thing that I'm going to do, even as evil is crushing in on top of me, is I'm still going to be faithful to God. I'm still going to do all the things that, that someone who loves God is going, is, is, should be doing. So he's modeling faithfulness and devotion to God. And the Passover meal was the God-appointed commemoration of the, of the Hebrew escape from Egypt. It specifically commemorates that 10th plague. If you remember this from Exodus chapter 12, the 10th plague was this death of the firstborn. And, in, and, and when the angel of death was unleashed on Egypt, the way that the Hebrew people would be protected so that their firstborns wouldn't die was that they were to go out and take a lamb and, and slay the lamb and collect the blood and then smear the blood on the doorpost of their home and on the lintel of the home. And when they did that, the angel of death would come through Egypt and see the, the, the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. The angel of death would pass, pass over. That's why it's the Passover. And so this commemorates such an important moment in the life of Israel. And right after this, of course, they escape uh, from Egypt and escape slavery. And the whole thing, the whole thing, I mean, you just see it in the way I just described it. The whole thing describes the final Passover sacrifice, the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the shedding of his blood on the cross, and the salvation that has been provided as a result of that to the world by the shedding of Christ's blood. The first Passover, God spared the firstborns of Israel. And in the final Passover, God actually gives his firstborn for the salvation of the world. In Jesus' observance of this meal, it just compels me to be careful about my own walk with him. To ensure that I'm really faithful and I'm thinking deeply about all of the things that God is doing in this world and in my life. It's compelling me to, to give attention to these things and to be faithful. Because we see all of these things as being part of God's divine and, and determined plan. So verse 13, notice, they went and they found it just as he had told them. This is God's determined plan working out in the midst of people who are being super faithful to him. Now that begs the question. Would you at this very moment describe your walk with Christ as being faithful? Would you describe it as being true? Would you describe it as being filled with in integrity, consistent? Do you, have a, do you have a fire in your belly for Jesus Christ? Do you have a burning passion for the mission? Is he at the very center of your life? Is he informing every part of your life? Think about when you, it's, it's a bit of a trivial illustration, but when you have a computer and it's time for your operating system to be updated and you get that notification, the window pops up and, and then you get the, you say yes and, and then the terms and conditions come up. And you have to agree to the terms and conditions in order to use the software. And in essence, what we're saying here is that God is downloading a new operating system when we become followers of Jesus Christ. He's downloading a new operating system into our lives. And we have to accept the terms and the conditions. And the terms and conditions are simple. Jesus Christ at the center. Click agree. I'm faithful to him no matter what's going on in my life. I'm walking with him faithfully. 
And if that's true, if that's you, then nothing will thwart God's good purposes in your life. But again, that's only part of it. As I seek to faithfully walk with God and, notice this next, anticipate, that's the key word, anticipate all that he's doing and will do. Are you anticipating all that God is doing right here? All that God is doing in your life and in your family? Are you anticipating even more in the future? I can't wait for that to happen. That's the key word is anticipate. I'll pick it up at verse 14. Now we'll read to 18. And when the hour came, he reclined at table. That's the way that they celebrated the Passover. We're not sitting up, but reclining. And the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The hour, the hour came. He, he, had, just, he had talked over and over again about the hour that's to come. And now the hour has actually come. This is it. This is the culmination of his mission upon earth. And you, and you look at Jesus' anticipation for this to all happen. Verse 15, he said to them, notice this phrase, I have earnestly desired, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That phrase earnestly desired literally in the original language is this, with desire, I have desired. It's the same word twice. With desire, I have desired. And Jesus is trying to find like the most powerful words that he possibly can find to communicate the strength and the force of what he's talking about here. I can't tell you how much I've desired this. My desire is so strong, I don't want anything else than what's happening in this very moment. To be with you and sharing this moment with you before I die. I mean, this is the idea. I mean, I just think about you. He just wants to be so present with them. To share this with them. We have, we have such trouble today being present. Just to be present in a room with people. Our smartphones war against us ever being present with people. We get together with people. We, you know, all oh, this, six of us are getting together. And then all six are looking at a different screen, doing different things. And you're bodily present. But your, your heart and your mind and your emotions are engaged in something else. But Jesus is present. He earnestly desired. He, 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 with desire, he desired to be with them. Do you have that kind of anticipation for the things of God? Do you, do, did you have it this morning? Like last night, were you thinking about what you're going to do this morning? I can't wait for tomorrow morning. I can't wait to be with the church. Did you wake up this morning and think, like, I don't want to be anywhere else. I just want to be with God's people. I can't think of a better place to be. I can't think of another people I'd rather be with. I can't think of an, another thing to do that would be better than this thing right here. This is, this is you saying, with desire, I have desired to be with God's people this morning. 
With desire, I have desired to be with my small group this week. With desire, I have desired to serve on my serving team. With desire, I have desired to faithfully walk with my God and to anticipate all that he is doing and will do. See, see, this is is both in the present and anticipation of the future. This is a a right now and a yet to come. In, In the passage, you see this in verses 14 and just into 15. This is about the present fellowship and the friendship of the disciples and spending this time in this in this gathering and having this meal. This is about the anticipation of that in the present, but it's also about the anticipation of the imminent, which is his suffering and his death that's to come. He mentions that in verse 15. And and finally, verse 18 mentions the future glory and the ultimate fulfillment and the coming of the kingdom of God. And and he he tells them in verse 16, I'm not going to eat this again with you. I'm not going to drink this cup with you again until we're all together in the kingdom. With desire, I have desired for that final, ultimate marriage feast when we're all going to be together. This wasn't just another Passover meal. This, this in fact, is the last Passover. A few hours after this meal would end, Jesus, the Lamb of God, would give his life and shed his blood as the final sacrifice for sin. As we hear those words, so much should well up inside of us. We think about what Christ has done for us. We, like Jesus, should be living our lives in anticipation of joining him at the table. At that future heavenly feast. And when we live with that kind of anticipation in our hearts. No matter what's happening around us. No matter how much evil is swirling about in our lives or, or how devastating the trials are that are afflicting us or whatever sorrows are being pounded on top of us. The purposes of God for good in our lives will never be thwarted. It can't be. Now why? The, the rationale we get... We get the rationale, the purpose behind all of this. Why? Because I look to Christ alone for all I need. I'm I'm looking to him alone. I'm, I'm not looking. I'm not looking for external blessings. I'm not looking for things in this world that are going to fulfill me and, and make me feel complete. I'm not even looking for those things. I'm looking to Christ alone for all that I need. And it's at this point that Jesus fulfills and changes the Passover. He transforms the Passover at this last celebration and, and, and remembrance, and he turns it into the, what we call the Lord's table or communion. Now look at verses 19 and 20. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Lord's table conveys several things to us. There's there's several themes that run through communion. The, The first and most obvious is thankfulness. 
Jesus gave thanks before the bread and the cup. And, and so this idea that we should be thankful for what Jesus did, thankful to our God for this, is, is a huge theme. And if you've come out of a, a more liturgical church tradition, you know that in those traditions, very often the Lord's table or communion is called the Eucharist. The Eucharist, uh, Eucharisto is a Greek word that means gratitude or thankfulness. And so that's a prominent theme, and we should be thankful as we take the Lord table, Lord's table for sure. If we think of, of other themes uh, that come out of the Lord's table, we can also think about a sacrifice. And obviously, you're um, e- eating the body of Christ, and you're drinking the, the represented the symbol of the blood of Christ. And each of these speaks to the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. We know that that sacrifice re- resulted in redemption. So if you're thinking of a third theme that could go with the Lord's table, redemption or salvation is obviously a big one. And, and the fact that we're doing it together or that we call it communion, uh, when you come together, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's table, when you come together, the idea is it's a meal that's supposed to be shared. And so as we take that meal, you know, like a fourth theme would be this oneness that we have, not only with Christ because we're, we're receiving the table, but it's, we're doing this together. So there's a oneness right here amongst us because we're taking the table together. And I've had occasion to travel to a number of different countries and I've been in, in services where I didn't understand the language. I didn't understand the words of any of the songs. Sometimes I recognize the melodies, but not the words. And I didn't understand any of the sermons that were preached, but, but Listen, even if I didn't understand a single word of what was going on in that service, as soon as they brought out the bread and the cup, I understood exactly what was going on. That's the beauty of what God has done for us is he's given us this symbol that transcends culture, that transcends language, that anybody can recognize. And as soon as the bread and the cup come out, I know these are my people. I feel one with them because we're sharing in the table together. Now, all of those themes are very common when we think of the Lord's table. But then I thought about this last one. We don't think about nearly as often. And it is the idea of sufficiency. You see, it's a meal. And what God is trying to communicate through this table, in addition to all these other things, is that what I'm providing for you is enough. You're eating bread and you're, you're drinking the fruit of the vine and and. And God is saying to you, it's all you need. There's nothing else that this world can provide for you that that would be any more or would add anything to that. That God himself is sufficient, that Christ alone is enough. And in fact, that there's no other way to be saved. I mean, if you go back to that story in, in, in Egypt, in Exodus 12, and, and the, the escape of the Hebrews from Egypt... The angel of death is coming over the land and the firstborn is going to die. And, and maybe some well-meaning Hebrew family would say, you know what, I'm, I'm just not into killing a lamb and I'm not into the spreading of blood. I think if I just stand at the door and recite scripture, maybe I can ward off the angel of death. Maybe I can do some other religious thing. Maybe we could just not be in our home that night and be somewhere else. Maybe we can just escape it and have our own plan. And God says, no, there's only one way. You got to kill the lamb. You got to spread the blood on your doorpost and your lintel. That's the only way. There's only one way. It's the one thing Israel needed. And when it comes right down to it, for you and I, the only thing that we really truly need is Jesus Christ. We actually don't need anything else. 
I, I, I know my body's going to fail someday. Your body's going to fail someday. Shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. I mean, just think about it. But the, the, the day is actually coming when you will no longer need food, shelter, water, the very basic necessities of life, of physical life, you will no longer need. And in that moment, when you are passing from life to death, let me ask you, what's the only thing you need? Say his name. That's the only thing you need. The basic staples to keep us alive, the things that have kept us going a lifetime are no longer necessary. All I need is Jesus. And sadly, we filled our lives with wants and called them needs. We've burdened ourselves with possessions that are meaningless and have no value in eternity. We've pursued gain and accumulated wealth that has displaced Jesus. And we've become so preoccupied with comfort that we actually have no time for the mission. And the table brings us back to the very core of what we believe. And Jesus says in the text here, do this, do this. He presents the bread and the cup and he says, do this in remembrance of me. What, what exactly is the this that we're to do? But at face value, I think the thing that we would all say is actually eat the bread and actually drink the cup. Do this, eat the bread, drink the cup. But I, I wonder if there's a possibility that there's actually even more to it than that. That what Jesus is really pointing us toward is this. Jerome Codell said that we are to make the same self-gift that Jesus made. Do this means make the same self-gift that Jesus has made. Pour your life out. Sacrifice yourself for the mission. All that Jesus has done in, in being faithful and loving his father and completing the mission and anticipating everything and having this communion and, and fellowship with his fathers. Do this. Do all of this. And if we do that, we truly are looking to Christ alone for all we need. Let's close it out with this last one. The purposes of God cannot be thwarted in my life because I look to Christ alone for all I need and I know that he determines my way. Verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. The son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Way back in the listing of the disciples, you go back to chapter 6, and so God, Jesus had called the, the 12 to himself, and then in chapter 6, verse 16, it actually identifies Judas among all the other uh, disciples, and uh, Luke would be the wrong kind of guy to talk about a new movie you want to see, because there's a massive spoiler in, in chapter 6, where he tells us right out of the gate in verse 16 that Judas is the traitor. And I'm going like, Luke, why'd you tell us that? It would have been great to build some suspense toward that. But Luke removes all of the suspense here. 
And so we know all the way through the gospel that, that Judas is a traitor. The reader knows that. But the 12 don't know that. The 12 have no idea that there's a traitor in their midst. And so as the disciples are reclined around that Passover meal, they have no idea, as Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. They have no idea who that is. It's a, it's a bit shocking to them when Jesus says in verse 21, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. One of you is the bad guy. Now skip verse 22 for a minute and then look at verse 23. They begin to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. I mean, that should stop us all in our tracks when we read that. It was not immediately obvious to the 12 who the betrayer was. That's how convincing he was at, at being a follower of Christ, being one of the disciples. It wasn't like they were sitting around going, oh, one of us is going to be, oh, that, for sure that's Judas. I mean, don't you think that's Judas? Oh, yeah, for sure that's Judas. They're not thinking that. They're talking among themselves, and it says here, they're having a conversation, and they're wondering who was going to do this. I mean, every indication is that Judas was sitting there at the table receiving the bread and the cup with them. I mean, it's possible to put on a show, to play the part, be here every Sunday, to take communion, to raise your hands in worship, to have your Bible open in front of you, to take copious notes, to be part of a small group, to be on a serving team. It's possible to do all of that and fool everyone in the room and actually be a betrayer of Jesus. Now, none of this catches Jesus off guard. He's always known there was a traitor. He's always known who it was. And he allowed him to be a part of the whole thing. The opposition, the priests, Satan, Judas, they're all part of the plan. And he said to them, look again now back at verse 22, because this is where it is. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. See, the answer to the sticking point about the determined will of God is right here in the verse. I mean, there can be no doubt that God is sovereign and that he determined every event leading to the cross. But the question always comes now, what about the free will of man? Are human beings free to make decisions or not? Did Judas have a choice or not? Do we have a choice or not? What we see in this passage are, we see human beings making good decisions and human beings making bad decisions. What we see in this text is Satan influencing a decision and what we see is God's will being determined throughout the whole thing. We see all of that playing out. So how then do human free will and Satan's activity and God's sovereign will, how do those all work out with each other? Seems like a pretty big question for the last few minutes of a sermon, don't you think? Was Judas free to make the decision? Or was he solely under the control of Satan or solely under the control of, of God? And the answer is yes. Now, I, I get that that's 
somewhat unsatisfying. But yes, Judas was free to make the decision. Yes, Satan was influencing him and it entered him. And yes, God is determining his will throughout. You see, figuring all of this out is the determined will of God. This isn't something that's difficult to reconcile. This is something that's impossible to reconcile from our perspective. In eternity, God will give us the picture. And so Judas is responsible for his actions. You see what Jesus said about him. Woe to that man. This is in the second part of verse 22. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. He's, he's guilty. He's responsible. He chose this. He opened himself up and Satan entered and God was using it all. God determines, but we are still responsible for every decision that we make. And for my part, the determined will of God, as I, I think about it, that brings me comfort and hope. That in the midst of, of life situations that are often very crushing, I can still look to a God who's working it all out, who has a plan, who, who wants good for me. That brings me comfort. That gives me hope for the future. It, it, it brings me joy to know that my God is in control. When things around me seem chaotic, when life circumstances are out of control, I know that my God loves me. I know that he's bringing about his perfect will in my life. The Apostle Paul said it this way, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The purposes of God cannot be thwarted in my life. Do you believe that? Amen? Amen.